This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Manchester suffered what police are calling a terrorist attack uh, at an area uh, at an Ariana Grande concert last night. The explosion at Manchester Arena killed 22 people, including kids. We're hearing one as young as eight years old uh, while leaving 59 injured. The Islamic State has taken credit for the attack, although they have provided no evidence at this point. To talk more about all of this and how it changes things moving forward, Dave, uh, David Harris is with us in Cygna Strategic Group and is on the line with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Oh, fine, thanks, Scott. A busy day, isn't it? Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, what are your first thoughts as you uh, hear about what happened at this concert? Well, it sounds like it's the shape of things to come. I mean, we've had now multiple uh, examples of the outrages of the sort that we saw in Manchester, or apparently saw. And if it should prove to be the case that this was Islamist terrorism, uh, particularly of the ISIS variety, then in a sense, it really shouldn't be much surprise based on the track record that ISIS has had in Western countries. We've seen a series of massacres, as you'll remember, of uh, varying modes, cars, trucks, knives, guns, and so on. And uh, we have the uh, examples of soft targets well and truly before us, uh, the Bataclan massacre, you remember, in France as part of a bigger kind of attack, even extending to the uh, focus that was part of that larger Bataclan attack in France on the uh, French stadium, where somebody appeared to be, or multiple people appeared to be trying to get into the stadium to cause even greater havoc than their suicide bombs actually achieved. So when you see all of that, I suppose it's got to be conceded that we've been well and truly warned, and those warnings extend far beyond uh, merely Europe and well into Canada, based on some of our own experience. What do we know about the attacker and the bomb itself? Very little. It's uh, reliable at the moment. Uh, Again, forensics will ultimately tell the tale. Um, Theories seem to range from suicide belts to uh, IEDs that may not have been part of a suicide belt, but the suicide belt theory has uh, been explored briefly by a former national counterterrorist chief of the United Kingdom who uh, has gone so far as to suggest that if it should be a suicide belt or if it should have been a suicide belt, that uh, that could signal a continuing risk from anybody who might have been associated uh, with the perpetrator of this because the experience of many of the coalition forces in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and elsewhere, with ISIS in particular, has been that um, suicide belts are often made in multiples, uh, not necessarily assembly lines, but again, producing multiples. And uh, that could mean that you could have still circulating one or more suicide uh, belts that could be uh, of planned use. So all of this points to the inevitability of our being in a race against time to try to determine more fully who is responsible 
and above all, what networks might have been implicated in all of it. Here's what Prime Minister Theresa May had to say. Many are being treated for life-threatening conditions. And we know that among those killed and injured were many children and young people. And here is the national, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coots. This threat is real. Uh, it is not going away and needs uh, significant attention uh, to do everything we can to protect our people uh, from these kinds of attacks. Uh, and a clip from a mother who ha- was trying to find her child. I'm, ha- I'm heartbroken at the moment because I don't know where she is. I don't know if she's alive even yet. Uh, just horrific. Uh, <sighs> David, how does this sort of stuff get past security? Anybody who goes to a concert nowadays, I mean, everybody is specifically screened, wand, what have you. How does this happen? Well, uh, we're going to have to see what kind of security was actually in play and enforced. In other words, not simply uh, imposed in a theoretical way or uh, once over lightly sense, but actually enforced. And uh, were there weaknesses? Were there openings? What about the exits. Uh, Very often security understandably focuses on the entryways and at times some people, we don't know that this is the case in this instance, but some folk on the defense side, as it were, may lower their guard, especially at the end of a conference of this kind of feeling that, well, we got through that satisfactorily. And by all accounts, it was indeed very satisfactory as things went to the finale. Uh, But it was then the finale that uh, seems to have been the cause of disaster. There's there's another issue here, if if I may, and it gets into some of the public policy questions that go around with this. We often talk, as you well know, about the kinds of threats we're all facing and what's often described as the delicate balance between freedom on the one hand and security on the other. And frequently, that calculus is managed by people sort of looking at the death tolls, and uh, as terrifying as some of those can be, um, they don't begin to tell the whole story. And I'm reminded of this by the clips that you played, especially the latter one of uh, apparently a mother seeking her child. Um, People don't generally understand in our society, because we're not exposed to it, that even the survivors can suffer the most hideous of injuries, literally unimaginable by most of them who are not uh, medical people. And we can understand that uh, psychologically debilitating results uh, from this can be carried through lives and generations, generations to follow. Uh, People can be rendered unemployable uh, for their lives. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, we often hear people saying that um, you've got individuals coming out of this who are, uh, uh, whose lives are not threatened. Uh, who might have relatively light injuries when it comes to threat to life and limb, without realizing that it can be almost a matter of course that eardrums are blown out in these things. And things like that don't even figure on the uh, Richter scale of damage very often in reports. And then, of course, if you also contemplate that any part of your body, any appendage you have, could be sliced through and removed in in an instant by the kinds of things we're hearing about, which is what makes so sinister um, the anti-personnel aspects of some of the IEDs, including reportedly what we're dealing with here, where you may have nuts, bolts, and nails. That's what these things are designed to achieve. And with that, of course, they're designed to render these things all the more terroristic as terror weapons, 
and to uh, inhibit the rest of society, render the rest of society count in the face of the ideologies that we are being threatened with here. Uh, David Harris is with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. David, what does it say when uh, these attacks are happening at concerts with young people, young teens, preteens? I mean, we're talking to kids that are around 8, 9, 10 years old, uh, over and above teenagers. Uh, is, is this a new level of low? Does, does, is, this event, is this event different because of this? Uh, I mean, it may be to the extent that it might awaken us to a reality that's existed for a very long time. Look, if we should be talking uh, ISIS in this one, what does one say about girls brought into sex slavery at age nine? Um, you know, what does it say about uh, drowning people uh, alive, burning them alive, yeah. and so on? I suppose it's more uh, testimony, our, our surprise, uh, shock is understandable, but our, our surprise and continuing surprise is more testimony to how comfortable we've been on any number of levels as Western societies and how, unfortunately, tragically, that comfort may now be coming to its almost inevitable end in the face of the kinds of uh, cosmically oriented terrorists we're now constrained to deal with beyond our borders and increasingly, as evidence has it, within our borders. David, can we win this war on terror? I can't help but think of uh, Winston Churchill's observation that we have to have victory because without victory, there is no survival. We're looking at uh, uh, jurisdictions, at regimes like Iran, of course, the foremost terrorist regime, getting nuclear weapons. We're looking at uh, North Korea, heading in that direction, and both of those countries, often in cooperation, developing missiles that can actually carry these things into our neighborhoods. Um, you look at ISIS as we've described it and come to know it. Uh, we have no choice but to at least constrain the enemy, or we would not want to really think about the logical extension of failure. Uh, are you surprised how quickly ISIS claimed responsibility? Um, it, it, was, it was noteworthy. Uh, I think the claims of responsibility for ISIS have tended, rather surprisingly to many, to be fairly reliable. I stand to be corrected, but that's my impression, having seen repeated instances of this. Uh, not to say they wouldn't be more than capable for propagandistic purposes of claiming more than they may have invested. And then you get into these difficult issues of attribution. We often hear that word in relation to that other and related threat of cyber terrorism. But the whole question, who is actually responsible, to what extent, was it a matter of limited inspiration uh, that then triggered an individual who may or may not have been in some kind of extensive communication with the enemy and enemy homelands like Iraq or Syria and so on. And what, again, does all this say about migratory movements, uh, bringing 300,000 people a year into Canada when... Um, uh, some of these people will come from very dangerous realms that we cannot meaningfully screen. What does it mean about mass refugee intakes from some of these realms? Yes, of course, any number of these people will be wonderful people. But uh, how removed are we really from the realities of the world in which we live today when we can seem to move blithely into these realms without the kind of vigorous, disciplined public discussion that would seem to be most fundamental to our continuing good health, if nothing else. Uh, Donald Trump in Saudi Arabia and Israel this week. What, 
how, how does the, how does that enter into the discussion? Well, I suppose in a way, uh, the recent outrage in Manchester is merely a reminder, and I fear historically it will look like the most infinitely small reminder of where we are today. And Mr. Trump, um, I suppose, is going to be uh, using this quite properly as an illustration of what any number of reasonable people in the Muslim world and beyond the Muslim world have been concerned about for many years. They have had to live with a lot of this stuff, even as many of us in the West have been busy rationalizing away this kind of concern and, frankly, being seduced uh, to rationalize away it by some of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood-type uh, so-called uh, Muslim representative and Muslim human rights groups that we have here in Canada. Um, any number of moderate Muslims have been warning us about such front groups and, of course, about overt terrorists as well. And uh, maybe uh, Mr. Trump's messaging, uh, at least that, ex- that form of it that has been rational and taste, will be of value in causing us to not become unduly alarmed in the sense of hysteria, but to focus on what counts, which is to say the evidence, and the evidence is mounting. Here's what uh, President Trump had to say about the attack. That's what they are. They're losers. And we'll have more of them. But they're losers. Just remember that. Uh, Will this unite the rest of the world? The Manchester bombing? Mm -hmm. I think it would probably hardly make a dent. Uh, we need uh, far greater catastrophes, really, to awaken us. One of the difficulties that uh, we face, and humanity may face, is um, something I alluded to earlier when I talked about how relatively comfortable most of us have been, because we've had the incredible blessing in historical and geographical terms of having been so removed, by and large, from this kind of thing. But uh, psychologists whom you talk to about messaging and educating ourselves and public in general in these things, will say, look, there's a reason why we managed to not get the depth of understanding that we should have about something that's been staring us in the face for now uh, two decades easily. And that is that there are psychological defense mechanisms and anxiety about these things at the uh, unconscious level triggers mechanisms which cause us to divert ourselves. And if we're not a society with lots of diversions available in entertainment and other terms, I don't know which society uh, has those things. The result is we hear about these attacks, these outrages, we're surprised by them. And frankly, uh, someone from Mars might increasingly wonder how it could be that an otherwise fairly bright animal manages to be surprised so routinely by precisely the same thing year in and year out. Will there be a tipping point? There may be, um, and it may be that the level of violence and the indeed chaos could become so pronounced in certain jurisdictions that our politicians, for example, can no longer uh, move along with the usual inevitable, and I am sure sincerely felt, cheerleading about, uh, you know, Boston strong and Toronto strong and let's uh, put on the colored lights and uh, have flags at half staff and uh, maybe I'll look a bit tough on terrorism today, but I won't do the things that really count, such as, as I described earlier, issues of immigration and uh, refugee intake that occur really in 
the absence of serious consideration that is in chain with a, without wanting to sound theatrical, a life and death threat that we all now face. And indeed, with issues of subversion of our democracy, as we find numbers of people coming into the country who may not share our fundamental views about open and tolerant societies, but may be coming in now in large and concentrated enough quantities that they themselves begin to form constituencies. And you can see even in some locales, local politicians, mayors, and so on, um, allowing things to slide by. And you see many moderate Muslims who themselves repeatedly warn that some police forces are, in their terms, infiltrated by individuals who do not share our values. When you start to reach points like that, and reasonable folk of balance and sobriety are cautioning us and have been for years from within the Muslim community and from other communities as well, then you don't have many more excuses left to you. Terrorism expert David Harris is with us in Cigna Strategic Group. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. A pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have uh, chatted many times over uh, uh, Toronto Pride's decision to exclude Toronto police in uniform from marching in their parade. The police will be there to provide security and be outside the uh, boundaries of the parade, but they will not be allowed to march inside the boundaries of the parade while in uniform. If they want to be out of uniform, they're more than welcome to, but uh, um, not allowed in the parade. Uh, and of course, I'm as I've been very vocal uh, about uh, this issue in the past. I'm um, I'm surprised at the lack of inclusivity, and I'm really surprised that this. I'm, I'm really surprised we're still talking about it. To be honest, I'm really surprised that this has not been resolved. Um, I, I'm really surprised that we don't have a list of demands that Toronto police have to change uh, in order to get uh, readmitted to the parade. It's very bizarre. And uh, again, Toronto Pride has been very, very quiet on all of this. We've tried several times to get them on the show to talk about this. Uh, But in the wake of all of this, uh, New York City uh, police and their pride have invited Toronto police officers to go to New York City and march in their parade this summer uh, in uniform. Apparently, the two parades are scheduled to take place on the same week. To talk more about all of this, Deirdre Pike is with us, senior social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council, and with us now. Deirdre, how are you today? Pretty great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Always appreciate it. Are you surprised this issue has not been resolved with Toronto Pride and Police? Mm. Um, You know, I think it would have been nice if it had if they had had the possibility of doing that by this pride, as you said. Uh, however, I think it is very complicated, probably requires many facilitated conversations. And, uh, you know, so I think it's only been a few months, really. Um, they've only had a couple of months since the official ban, so I think they've got some work to do. But you're right about, I mean, one thing I know of, uh, we discussed before is, um, you know, I, I would, like, would like to know, um, you know, what markers or indicators... Um, is um, what are the are Toronto Pride uh, looking for from the police? Like what will show that, okay, mm-hmm. um, here's some things that have changed, and so now uniforms are welcome again. Like that's, you know, clearly, you know, one of the big sticking points. So um, is there a way that, is that, uh, has that been talked about? I'm not really sure. So 
again, the other thing is it's again uh, it's a conversation happening somewhere else. So I, uh, I'm not privy to all the ins and outs, but I. Uh, uh, those are certainly things to consider. Uh, and you bring up a very valid point. This is obviously an extremely complex issue, and and you know we don't want to oversimplify 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 things by simply saying, yeah, you know, why don't you guys just come together and all and you know and and work this all out and hug and we'll all be happy. Um, but as you said, to me, pride's always been about dialogue. It's always been about. Um, uh, coming out and 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 having these discussions that at one point made us uncomfortable and I, and I think what I'm surprised in all of this as you know sort of watching it from afar is that uh, although there appears to be dialogue going on behind the scenes it all seems very secretive and I'm not sure if that's from where I'm standing is what pride's all about and as you mentioned, it just doesn't, it seems like, you know, we heard they're out and then that's it. There's no real dialogue. There's no, as you mentioned, list of demands, criterias, markers, indicators. And as as a community, as a society, society as a whole, isn't, aren't those the discussions that we should all be having? I, I, yes, there are, I think both those things have to happen. I think that there's definitely you know, I hope that there are conversations happening. I'm not sure that anything is happening secretively. You know, I'm not aware of of that, um, as you indicated. But um, if there are, you know, I hope there are meetings happening between um, the Pride Board and police. However, I could also see these are volunteers from the community uh, that have other jobs and um, they volunteer on this board. And so they're getting ready for the festival would be their main thing. So imagine having to do prioritize that at the same time, these other meetings. So I suppose that's exactly why it's not happening as quickly as, as you might think. Um, having said that, then, of course, yes, have those meetings. And then, yes, um, I, the one thing I would hope is that there would be some some updates to the community at large about how those conversations are proceeding. But I do think that they're um, very um, uh, delicate's not the right word. I mean, they're just such... Uh, they're wicked in the sense that there's ambiguous answers coming from every angle. And so they do need some time, some quiet time. I hope they, they could take a day together, you know, and have a, almost a retreat day where they, um, there's so much to unpack. So, uh, you know, how, it, how, it, how they play it out, I'm not really sure how it's going to work. But it, isn't, uh, it, is not, it is not clear, as you say, um, and you, I, in your opening remarks, say, you know, this is a lack of inclusivity and, and we're used to something different. And um, again, the thing is that Pride is working very hard at being inclusive. However, the conversation, the, the community that they're most um, prioritizing at this point in terms of inclusion are the racialized members of the LGBTQ community. Those are the demands that have um, been prioritized and and. I would assume, I think, it for very good reason that, um, you know, from the side of uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter, the demands and, and representing other racialized communities with, um, within the LGBTQ community, there are a lot of concrete things that have not been done or that have been done that have shown um, uh, a lack of inclusivity. And in fact, Pride Toronto said that they have apologized uh, that, these, that they've left many in their communities feeling attacked and that there's been an unbelievable amount, this is coming from their own um, statements, uh, an unbelievable amount of racism expressed by members of our community and through this organization. So they're acknowledging that their own organization has been racist, and this is what they're prioritizing. We need to uh, 
really step up and have some integrity around our conversation with the black, uh, uh, with the people who, uh, I really think it's people of color. I think it's a larger conversation, but it was initiated by Black Lives Matter. So that's what they prioritize. And they also have to deal with their relationship with the police. So there's two relationships that they need to work on. They've prioritized one that, uh, a different one. Um, are you disappointed this is less about the gay community and more about um, uh, another cause? Mm, no, I think this is very much like when you say this is what pride has been about. When pride has been about inclusion... It means inclusion within our own um, minority sexual orientations and genders. And so uh, our inclusion has very much been about white, able-bodied, gay, lesbian people. And if you talk to people who don't identify that way, they feel a lot of exclusion. And so it's those voices that are, are being prioritized at this point, not the, not the police. And so my bigger disappointment is... Um, Really, I find the response of the New York, um, who is this that's invited them uh, to join? It's not the organizers of Pride in New York that's invited them. It's, a, it's one contingent of the Pride. It's an, you know, I know it's a police enforcement group, law enforcement group uh, that has invited them. And um, they, you know, it's kind of a little bit of meddling, you know. It's not a statement from New York Pride saying, hey, Toronto Pride, you don't have it together, so we're inviting your police to, to march in our parade. No, no, it's a participating parade uh, marching group within that saying, okay, come join us. And it doesn't solve anything back home. Uh, you know, the fact is, um, I know that individual police officers are very upset about this. And I'm sorry about that. They are in a very difficult place. They're committed to their organization and they're committed to their lives as LGBTQ people. I also once worked for an organization that had a terrible history with LGBTQ people and still does, and that's the Catholic Church. And yet my on-the-ground experience, like many individual queer and trans officers, has been good. My experience when I go to church at St. Joseph's on Sunday is wonderful. What they write about me in Rome is terrible. What the individual um, LGBTQ officer experiences, I, I suppose they must experience some very good things in their individual um, uh, precincts and detachments, um, and yet they need to own their, their organizational history is terrible with LGBTQ people, and it's a diff difficult place to be in. I've lived it. They now need to live it, and they need to give up their uniforms until their organization and pride get it together and hopefully you know by next year uh there have been some changes in that relationship thankfully i mean hamilton we don't even have a parade to to worry about that's so sad really it's so sad we don't have one and if we did it would be up to pride organizers and hamilton to police to be sure that their organ their relationship is good do you think the relationship would be good enough to have the hamilton police march in a hamilton pride parade I, I do. I think the history is, I think that there is one terrible incident that the Hamilton police know about. I mean, know about. I mean, that they have, um, I don't know if they've officially apologized for, which is the Project Rosebud, which targeted gay men at one time in the history. Now, Toronto police have done, like, have a, a more extensive um, past and uh, around gay bathhouse raids and things like that. So, but... Um, 
my personal thing is that I think that uh, it would be okay. It was okay when we did have a parade last time. Uh, however, I don't think that, uh, I don't know if individual officers even walked the last time there was a parade. In London, for example, London, Ontario, the, the, the relationship there with the police and the LGBTQ community, completely different and wonderful. It was only uh, a couple of years back that, um, that London police uh, walked for the first time in the London parade. It was um, uh, their 17th annual parade. It happened uh, in, in 2011, actually. And uh, I remember the chief, um, you know, he said, yes, we've been invited to march and we're going to march. We're looking really forward to it, wearing our uniforms and, uh, and pride organizers were fine with it. It was the people of London started writing letters to the local paper saying our police shouldn't wear their uniforms in this parade. And the chief said, you know, I have worn my uniform with pride for 37 years and I'm going to wear it with pride in this pride parade. And um, and so that's a, you know, their relationship came together differently. So, and the same in New York, they had to fight, you know, to get to wear their uniforms. Now they can. And so Toronto police are in a different place right now with their relationship with pride. And hopefully it will come to that good place again. Um, and Hamilton still needs to work on it as well, but we don't have a parade to test it out on. Uh, Black Lives Matter, obviously very vocal about keeping police out. Are you disappointed they're not as vocal about a, supl- a solution to bring them back in? Uh, if it, yes, if that's true. Like I, I, Again, I don't know what they've proposed as a solution. So I do definitely think that they're... I think that when conversations are going to move forward, it needs to be that, you know, there's a proposal on one side, there needs to be something on the table to discuss. And I, I don't know what that is. You know, is it if, if the police do these three things, you know, yeah. they will be able to march. I'm not really sure. And they might be, they might be broader than just um, LGBTQ related. It could also be racially um, motivated conversations that are needed to be had. You know, are these conversations about... Um, carding and that kind of thing so i don't know what the demands are that's what we you know would be helpful i suppose deirdre pike has been with us senior social planner with the social planning and research council deirdre as always thanks for the time much appreciated okay scott thank you for thank you me. let's bring in mike mccormick president of the toronto police association uh he is with us now hello mike how are you today I'm great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Mike. What is the buzz within the Toronto Police Service about this? How big an issue is this? Well, it's a big issue uh, for for a couple of reasons. And, and first of all, I was listening to your other guests, and 99% of what uh, they were saying I agree with. And then looking at relationships, looking at the historical perspective, and, and thinking about what it was. You know, like I've been in policing for over 30 years you know, and where we were 30 years ago to where we are today and the historic piece around uh, policing. But it wasn't only policing. It was the communities we live in. The cities have changed. Uh, everything is changing. And what it is is that, you know, we have a very uh, large service, over 5,000 sworn police officers and, and 3,000 civilians. And so we are reflective of the community. We have a very large LGBTQ uh, membership who have been working so hard along with the community, to break down those barriers, establish relationships. And we've been doing this for so many decades. Is it perfect? To your uh, last person's uh, points, no, it's not perfect. Is there work to be done? A hundred percent. That's not what this is about. We've been participating in the parade for over 10 years, and we've had a float and a uniform contingency in the parade for the last three years without any issues it was very well received in the community uh part of it was an inclusive uh parade and this is again about pride 
But it's only last year after Black Lives Matter, as we said, hijacked the parade and made these ridiculous demands that police officers in uniform have been outlawed from the parade. Has Black Lives Matter said what they want from police to move forward, to bring police back, you know, inside under the umbrella? (laughs) Yeah, they want us to be uh, not participating in the parade. They don't want us at any of the centers. They don't even want to see us on the parade route. I mean, it's these ridiculous types of demands, which, again, do not uh, help foster relationships, do not break down barriers. All they do is separate and drive wedges in uh, between the police and the community, and that's my, my concern. How has uh, Toronto Pride uh, justified this with police? How, how, how have they sold this to police? Well, they sold it to police saying, oh, well, you know what, we went out and we talked to some members of the community and there have been concerns about the uniform police presence. And lo and behold, we've been doing this for the last three years, and now all of a sudden it becomes an issue. So, again, that's what they're saying. And, and, you know, I'm the spokesperson for my officers and civilians who work for the Toronto Police Service. And and the officers in in particular who are are part of the LGBTQ community. And one of the reasons it's important for, and again, your last guest speaker who put it in a very uh, um, succinct way, you know, the, the part about the uniform, self-identifying as an LGBTQ uh, member and a police officer, I mean, that's part of it. They wear the, their, their policing uniform uh, and a member of the police service with pride, and they also have pride in being part of that community. And now they're being shamed and saying, uh, don't, you know, you can declare yourself as LGBTQ, but heaven forbid you should say you're a police officer. And the New York experience, which is so different, that they had to, in the, the 90s, they had to take their service, and this is the goal, the Gay Officers Action League, had to take the New York Police Department to court so that they were allowed to wear their uniforms with hmm. pride. And it, it, it just this seems to like as such a useless argument or debate that this should be inclusive and we should be, you know, the city's funding this. Yeah. And, and we're city employees, so... Are you are you confident that there's a discussion moving? Uh, there's a discussion being had right now, moving this forward. Not at all. Not you not even confident. And then we and we heard from uh, Olivia, the Pride organizer, when when one of the media, I think Sue Ann Levy of uh, the the Sun, uh, was talking about it and, and put that question. Well, do you have ongoing uh, conversations with uh, Chief Saunders here in Toronto? And she said, well, they haven't met in months, basically, and she's too busy running a parade to worry about what Chief Saunders are or what the Toronto police, says she, you know, her uh, concerns are right now about running the parade. So I don't think there's any meaningful discussion. And they're saying, okay, well, let's wait till next year. Well, what about the two decades that our officers in the community have been working to break down those barriers? That all gets flushed down the toilet. But meanwhile, we're going to change the relationship in one year. Are you really? Are you surprised that this has gotten this far? Are you surprised that even at this late date? I mean, I thought this would all be resolved long before the parade. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm surprised and, and saddened by the debate. Like I, like I said, our officers, not only in the LGBTQ community, but also our officers who would go down and go to that parade. You know, it was important to go there and support it. They had a good time. It was a, a very inclusive parade. And now to, to think that we're having this discussion in, you know, 2017, it's like it's such a step backwards. And, and it also has driven a wedge between our LGBTQ officers and the pride organizers. They're not going to support this parade in any way. What will this year's parade be like, Mike? I mean, how, how, what do you think the vibe's going to be on the street? Well, you know what? I think the vibe is going to be different. There's going to be uh, at least 11 fewer floats when we counted because PLOPP, 
all these other uh, agencies would come to Toronto and, and represent in uniform, and they're not going to be participating. And what the vibe, I don't know what the vibe's going to be like here, but I'll let you know what it's like in New York City where we've been asked to attend in our uniforms where uh, people can be proud of being a police officer and uh, a mature thing and proud of being uh, part of the LGBTQ community. Talk about this, Mike. How did this all come about? What are your thoughts on the New York City offer? Well, first of all, you know, it came about because they've been monitoring and, and, and the irony of what's going on here where officers have been uh, told uh, you can't show up in uniform. And they're watching it in the States, and they're also dealing with our officers on, on the international network, saying, what is going on in Toronto? Like, we had to fight. We had to take our service to court so we could wear our uniforms and we could be proud. And you guys are up there in Toronto doing everything backwards. We're taking the uniforms saying you can't. So they said, you know, come on down here, be proud to be a police officer, be proud to support the community and proud to be part of the community. And what a novel idea. Uh, what are your thoughts on how the chief is handling all of this? Is, is Toronto Police doing enough? Well, again, you know, my thoughts on that are, are, are that, you know, the chief said, well, we're not going to go in the parade. I, I think that was the wrong decision. I think you do what the right thing to do is, no matter what the criticism. And, and I think either we're inclusive uh, in the parade, uh, and like I say, if, if this was a privately funded parade, have whoever you want there. But if you're coming to the city and saying, okay, can you fund, and we're giving them $700,000 in kind in policing and stuff like that, and then you're saying, well, you know what, your uniform members can't, uh, like I say, heaven forbid you should identify as a police officer, uh, I think it sends the wrong message uh, to uh, my members, and uh, my members aren't happy about it. So go ahead and have your parade, but don't ask uh, our employer to pay for it. What happens if an officer is standing there doing his or her duty and they just start uh, partaking or dancing? Or uh, at what point, no, no, you just stand there, you can't have fun. H- how, do you, how do you decipher whether they're actually in the parade or not? I mean, there's like an invisible rope there. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, uh, what... You know, the officers, we're, we're going to provide security because that's what we do. We'll provide a safe environment. But I can tell you this isn't going to be like past years where there is a sense of levity, a sense of inclusiveness, a sense of belonging. Our officers feel this, and they're just saying we're not going to do that. If they, if they want to dance around while they're on the traffic point, well, so be it. But they won't be participating in the parade. That's not the environment we're in, and that's not how our officers feel right now. Mike McCormick has been with us, president of the Toronto Police Association. Uh, the Pride debate continues in Toronto between police and Toronto Pride. Uh, that being said, they've been offered to uh, participate in New York City's Pride Parade. Mike, thanks for the time at Insight. Much, uh, much appreciated. Take care. Thanks for having me, and you guys take care, too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked about renegotiation of NAFTA. Many who we've talked to have said that it's uh, pretty much time for this to happen anyway, since uh, it was 20, 25 years ago that this was all uh, negotiated. Things have changed a lot since then. But uh, these have forced the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, along with others such as those in Windsor, Essex, and Sault Ste. Marie, to launch surveys to companies in the steel food chain to figure out whose health is contingent on the Canada-U.S. agreement. To talk more about all of this, Husefa Saeed is with us, policy and research analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and is with us now. Hello, Husefa. How are you today? Yes, God, I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, how concerned are you and those at the, cha- at the Chamber about uh, the NAFTA renegotiations with the United States? I think the beginning of our concern is with, with the idea that, that 
I think NAFTA was signed around 94, and since then, Canada-U.S. trade has been a given. Um, our, especially being a manufacturing town, uh, there's been a lot of positive activity with, with very highly integrated supply chains and, and businesses benefiting from having a stable system through which they can create partnerships across the border. And then the steel industry, uh, which we were initially focusing on, uh, is a great example of it, where iron ore goes up and down the Great Lakes, and then uh, products are either uh, mastered and, and, and finished in, in ArcelorMittal DeFasco and other steel mills in Hamilton, um, or you know, they're, we create some products and then and they're flown down the down the river or down the uh, lakes, and and then some facility in the in the U.S. finishes them, and then it's a symbiotic relationship that's worked out quite well for us and manufacturing industry. So it wasn't something where there's a wealth of knowledge or a wealth of ongoing discussion and activity and taking stock of uh, what the policies are and, and and whether we need to rethink them. So this, uh, you know, the election of President Trump and then him threatening or I guess promising to uh, you know do something with NAFTA, and then all of a sudden last week announcing a 90-day period, uh, it comes uh, with a slight bit of scrambling on our part, and, and, and we're, not, we're, not, we're not alone in this. I think uh, members of the government will openly admit that uh, they're going through a lot of reconfiguration of their work plans uh, in order to move up the schedule from when they expect enough to be renegotiated. So August 16th is the day uh, based on uh, him uh, announcing the NAFTA renegotiation last week, when NAFTA can be, uh, you know, uh, signed over and completed, and they will have to pass two houses down there. But uh, it's unexpected, and, and we don't have a lot of body of knowledge. So we, we launched a survey um, earlier today uh, with our membership, as well as all businesses in Hamilton. Uh, it was focused initially on steel industry, but we've expanded the scope to include all manufacturing to start off. Uh, and we're just asking our members, you know, what is your trade relationship with with the with the U.S. Because it's not something we've been discussing at our economic summit or in Hamilton or even the news media uh, for the past decade or so. Um, and then we're going to move on from there into uh, eventually, you know, agric- agriculture, agri-food, uh, and later on, uh, what is in- supposed to be included in a potential ideal scenario of an updated NAFTA as opposed to no NAFTA or, or you know, downplayed NAFTA, uh, the services sector, which, which wasn't, as you can imagine, in the early 90s uh, included or a big concern, but the services economy in Hamilton and the Greater Toronto, Kishina Waterloo area has been one of the rising forces, and um, it will be also interesting to see down the road uh, if we can get a good handle on, you know, um, how much business they, they do with the U.S. But, uh, you know, from an Ontario perspective, we don't have the Hamilton numbers, but the Ontario perspective, it's it's close to $49 billion. And uh, Canada-wide, like, it's an $800 billion file. So uh, it's, it's not certainly not small potatoes, um, and, and, and we're very much... Uh, moved around uh, quite a few of our projects to uh, prioritize this as a, as a key uh, issue. So obviously, uh, many are surprised about having to do this. That being said, um, prior to the Trump administration, were, were there those that thought, you know what, this does, does, this does need to be renegotiated, this is outdated? Were there calls for that? Could you see evidence of that? I, I think there have always been calls for... Um, what, what they would frame it as uh, regulatory cooperation needs to be updated. Um, we, our, our own chamber, have been submitting policy resolutions to the Canadian Chamber over the last few years uh, talking about, you know, what is relatively small potatoes, which is 
you know, when, when goods go over the border, like what do the inspections look like? Can we can we work together to, you know, make them faster? Uh, can we have pre-existing legislation on both sides of the border in terms of, uh, you know, uh, subsidies and, 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 you know, uh, partnerships between certain products? Uh, can we can we create more alignment with our rail infrastructure? Can we create more alignment with shipping? Uh, those were the, really the more constructive things that uh, Canadians had been focused on. But you know, as as a file, like it it really wasn't something the prime ministers were going around talking about. The presidents were going around talking about quite actively. It was it was just something that was being worked upon uh, by uh, senior bureaucrats behind the scene and uh, the business lobby or, or, or chambers of commerce. They were tuned in, but. Uh, it wasn't front and center, but I think I think the issue with 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 this this time around is um, you don't really know, or, or organizations don't really know where to begin and wh- where to end in terms of what actually is happening and, and what really are the priorities. And uh, in in April there were there was a, a set of stories that went out in news media saying that Trump was almost about to um, sign an executive order, which to uh, announce his intention to end NAFTA altogether. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this whole story painted about uh, Katie Telford, the uh, chief of staff for the prime minister, who got a call at 5.30 p.m. from Jared Kushner, the uh, senior advisor to President Trump. And, you know, they pulled off on the side of the road and, and they booked a last-minute mm-hmm. phone call with President Trudeau that happened later that evening, and that got Trump off uh, uh, that bridge of, of, you know, uh, canceling, canceling NAFTA altogether one, one fine April afternoon. So um, <laughs> what, what, what folks say is that there's two different camps. Like one of the camps believes in, uh, in, in what I think business communities, like for the most part on both sides of the border, believe in, which is uh, this is a great opportunity to update NAFTA and, and make it work better for businesses um, on both sides of the border because of how interconnected our economies are. Uh, but then there's also another camp uh, with, with certain advisors of President Trump um, who have a lot more protectionist um, uh, beliefs and, and, and rhetoric and policies. And, and, and you certainly saw a lot of those come out when, when President Trump would do rallies in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, where, where you know he was very aggressively uh, posturing about what he's going to do with NAFTA and, and how unfair uh, Canada and Mexico apparently have been to uh, the U.S. economy and U.S. workers specifically. Uh, is this a wild goose chase or a negotiation? How do you dedicate your time spent to certain things and then uh, maybe uh, it doesn't prove fruitful? How do you know where to put your energies at this point if the target if the target's moving? I, I think that's exactly where our starting point is. Like we're, we're, we've opened um, a dialogue with with the. Uh, uh, Minister Freeland's office, like her office, will be uh, negotiating this. So we're planning on sending uh, constant updates from um, uh, outcomes from our survey, like what our members are thinking, uh, just to help her office uh, get a better handle. And you know, the the uh, dialogue that we've heard from the Canadian Chamber is that uh, going into these negotiations, there's always Plan A, B, C, D, E, F. Um, and if, if Plan A is is that this will work out well and NAFTA will get updated. We'll make major improvements on regulatory cooperation and, uh, you know, we will add certain new sectors into it, like the services economy, and then that might open up new outlets for Canadian businesses to, uh, you know, start bidding for contracts in those in, those, uh, in America and, like, start working on uh, joint projects. Um, that, that's the best-case scenario. Uh, worst case scenario, which which is also being thrown around, but we've been cautioned by the Canadian Chamber that it's 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 
somewhat unlikely, even though it's it's been spitballed, is uh, a trade war, which you know last happened in the 1930s, and uh, it, it didn't really work out well for any government on either side of the border. Even though uh, the, the the gulf in scale of our economies is significantly different, and uh, some economists say that all all it will take for the U.S. to completely cut off hypothetically all trade with with Canada or significantly shorten it uh, would be a 10% expansion in their production capacities as a country. So uh, while while we are a major market, um, I, I think at the same time, it's no one's trying to think about the worst case scenario. They're, they're hoping for somewhere in scenario A to C, which is uh, some kind of renegotiation. And then, you know, the other thing on the table is if NAFTA uh, goes off the rails, and 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 uh, President Trump wants to only deal with Canada separately, and then Mexico separately. Then I think by default we go back to the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, which uh, you know isn't the best case scenario because it was also negotiated in the 80s, but uh, it gives us a more stable platform to uh, still have as a backup. So, so, so I think from our end, what, what we're saying is this needs to be a very extensive dialogue, even though we realize it's it's going to be July and August, when a lot of this work is done, like we we we're, we have an open invitation for any government officials to come to town and 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 do a tour of our members, like do roundtables, like uh, do dialogue with the, with the Chamber of Commerce and and whatever else uh, is necessary to make sure they're equipped with all the facts. Um, I, I I think we're 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 somewhat confident that um, given the way we do business here, uh, we do policy work here. It will be a well-resourced initiative, and then, and in addition to politicians and and the cabinet, it will also involve um, uh, ministry and civil servants and subject matter experts on the matter. I think that the concern is that on the other side of the border, um, this won't really be led by technocrats. It would be led by the White House, which has uh, publicly shared, you know, divisions amongst uh, different staff on what exactly they hope. To see uh, in terms of Canada, U.S. and and in global trade and and the future of the U.S. economy. So I, so I think when we're dealing on the flip side with with political interests and ideologies, and uh, it becomes I suppose uh, as you can imagine somewhat difficult for um, a technocratic approach from the Canadian side uh, and and to to really work out. Will this be a positive experience for Hamilton? Do you think? How are they going to fare through all of this? Well, I, I, I think. Really depends on what the outcomes are. Um, we we're not really co-joined to you know softwood lumber and and the dairy industry, which seem to be uh, mm-hmm. top of mind for President Trump. And uh, you know we have interest in the auto uh, sector. And then you know from the brief dialogue we've had with auto making uh, auto sector you know policy experts and industry associations, like I think they're confident that the the business lobbies on both sides will. Uh, make it quite clear to President Trump that um, there is a lot of benefit that has happened uh, to the connection and the and the progress the auto sector has made uh, in through, through NAFTA. And you know, as most of you might know, like we have plants in Southern Ontario that are uh, you know supplied by uh, Canadian steel and, and and steel made in Hamilton as well as auto parts made in Hamilton. And and they've benefited from a single car being made uh, across three countries. And uh, it's it's uh, almost seamless, you know, just in time manufacturing type of experience. And um, I, I I think those kind of industries will, will will make sure 
they're highlighting the benefits. And, and, and that's also our intention with the steel industry. So we're visiting um, Ottawa on, on May 30th uh, to do a presentation to the uh, steel caucus of the uh, House of Parliament, which which if all the members of parliament would, would have an interest or, or businesses in, involved in the steel industry in their hometowns and includes us, MP Scott Duval and MP Bob Bertina from Hamilton as well. So we were going there on their invitation and um, they're doing uh, their own uh, cross-border trip uh, in the summer to visit the U.S. Uh, steel Caucus, which is their uh, senators and, and House representatives uh, coming from uh, steel communities. And, and, and the idea is that this isn't a hey, please talk to us kind of visit. This is a coordinated visit where both steel lobbies on, on each side, despite having you know perhaps slightly different opinions on the future of NAFTA, uh, would be very interested in discussing and, and, and sharing experiences from their businesses on how beneficial uh, Canada-U.S. steel industry uh, linkage has been. Uh, because this isn't just about NAFTA. I think the other two things being floated around as well are Buy America policies and, and, and border tariffs, which is uh, he, President Trump has also separately announced that he wants to uh, create a tax for any products that are made in Canada or supplied through Canada uh, in order to make uh, U.S.-made products more enticing. And uh, that's just not the way steel industries have evolved, and that's just not the way business experts would say uh, is a more efficient way of doing things, which is uh, do it completely in-house. It will take the U.S. a long time to build the capacities that their businesses have been able to co-create with uh, U.S. and Mexico uh, businesses. Huseyba, how long is this whole process going to take? When will this be put to bed? So the uh, announcement last week initiates a 90-day cycle. So so the uh, trade offices have 90 days to solicit feedback and solicit uh, consultations on, on, on each end. And um, the idea, the speculation is that while... Uh, the uh, agreement is eligible to begin formal renegotiations on August 16th. Um, it, it will probably be uh, you know a few weeks or a month later from which when they re- really sit down and try to hammer it out. Like, uh, but but one of the political considerations is that the midterm elections are in November, and um, for President Trump, if this has been a major political point that he's made, uh, the speculation says that. He will try to wrap it up before November. So, so again, these 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 are very fast timelines, and and, and mm-hmm. that's certainly been the uh, uh, the trajectory with the Trump administration. They're not in the business of, uh, I suppose, the uh, traditional way of doing things or, or the Canadian way of doing things, where there's years and years of planning and consultation and uh, academic studies and and you know cost benefit analyses and and in all of that all of that you know academic work. I think they they have certainly shown with the record number of uh, you know, executive order sign that it's it's more about demonstrating strong action. Uh, so so I think it's it's works really cut out on the from the business community on both sides of the border because uh, Canadian Chamber President uh, Perrin Beatty he's he's been visiting uh, different states over the last uh, month or so uh, Tennessee and and Carolinas and, and and other states and and he's been having dialogue with with local state legislations and local governors and local business communities, and, and, and they've been very, very receptive to this kind of outreach and, and, and the idea of uh, let's go at it together and, and, and demonstrate to President Trump that this is something worth worth keeping, and, and he needs to be very, very careful about the unintended impacts. And I think uh, while the crusade for now has been about you know saving jobs and saving American 
uh, future of American economy. I think uh, the other argument of this is if, if this just goes through without full consideration, uh, it could also lead to significant job losses on the uh, American side. And, and the Canadian you know, government has often said that there's uh, indirectly or directly indirectly almost 9 million American jobs. Uh, that are connected to uh, the, uh, the export economy towards Canada. So, so that's a significant figure. That's way higher than uh, the other industries that uh, President Trump is, is trying to uh, help protect. I uh, only got about 30 seconds left here, uh, Hussein. Will this New Deal look much different, or is it a lot more saber-rattling than anything? It's, I, I, I wish I knew that, and if I knew that, I'd be one of the most popular people in the two countries. <laughs> because, I can uh, see that. speculation on every side, everyone that has a stake in this is, is providing different views, and I think we're, we're, we're going to rely more carefully on um, where the Canadian Chamber thinks things are headed, because they, as you know, they have a... They have a direct hotline to every chamber across Canada, and and, and um, they've already been hearing from from chambers across Canada what businesses are saying, and uh, they they seem to be uh, slightly more confident on on where things are headed, and and, and they haven't you know thrown caution to the wind just yet, and uh, you know they're they're actually looking to have more constructive dialogue on on the cyber economy and uh, and, and and things like that, and and and, and having less focus on on fear mongering and. Let's focus on how the world's going to burn down. So I, I think we're we're optimistic as long as they're optimistic. So, so they haven't signed the alarm bells yet. Hussein Saeed has been with us, policy and research analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, talking about how NAFTA could, of course, affect uh, chambers across the country and province. Hussein, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.